Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Good evening and welcome to the Fred Paul Show on ADH TV. Check out this video of professional basketballer Isaac Humphreys coming out as gay to his teammates at the Melbourne United NBA Basketball Club. A few years ago I fell into a very dark place, a very lonely place. I couldn't be who I am and, and I attempted to take my life and the main reason behind me becoming so low and, and being in that point is because I was very much struggling with my sexuality. This video has been posted many times on social media and everywhere it is, it, everywhere it is, it's attracting messages of support. And that's a good thing. It wasn't long ago that homosexuality was not only shunned in Australia, it was a crime. And there are still places in the world where, barbarically, armed men march gays to the top of tall buildings, bind their hands and throw them off, murdering them in a horrific display of xenophobia. Thanks mostly to our Christian and enlightened heritage of mutual respect, our society is nicer than that. Acceptance of homosexuality is now so widespread that it's virtually institutionalized into our culture. The media, government, big business, and even some parts of the church bend over backwards to display their gay credentials and respond with ferocity to anyone who dares express an alternative opinion. If only we were as positive about traditional social institutions as we are about these new ones like marriage, for example. My colleague Nick Cater wrote a piece for The Australian this week that inadvertently exposed how hostile large parts of Australian society now are to what for centuries has been the bedrock of our civilization. If I could summarize Nick's point, it would be women in their 20s and 30s are increasingly choosing to be single instead of marrying. Single women are less likely to have completed a university degree. They also, on average, earn less. This means they are more often than not locked out of buying a house, which for most people is the financial, indeed spiritual, foundation to a happy, stable life. As a result, and this is the controversial bit, women who otherwise could have enjoyed the benefits of being in a financial and emotional partnership with a man for life are increasingly reliant on the government instead for help, and they vote accordingly. 
These points should have been uncontroversial because they are statements of fact, not opinion. But they can also be construed as an old white man telling young women to get married and have babies. Saying that in Australia today is like admitting you were gay 60 years ago. The pile-on has been extraordinary to watch. Young Liberal member Charlotte, Charlotte Mortlock, a journalist and member of Hilda's Network, which is some sort of support group for professional women, wrote in the Oz, quote, This cohort of young single Australian women is more educated and has a higher amount of disposable income than their mothers and grandmothers. Well, there's a problem right there. You'd think that being more educated and richer, she'd add that they are happier too. But she doesn't, nor does she pause to wonder why this might be so. The quote goes on. They're tired of being told when they should have babies, when they should get married, and who they should vote for, unquote. To be clear, Nick Cater's piece said none of this, except that family formation creates personal fulfilment and social stability. Mortlock went on, quote, Young, single Australian women don't need husbands. They need and deserve legislation and political parties to talk to them, not about them." Unquote. So essentially, she's agreeing with Nick Cater. Young women are not getting married and they need the government to help them get through life. Judging by the response to Maud Locke's piece, the government will, the government will help them too. Labor long ago abandoned defending families and instead now jumps on whatever social trends the media pushes. But the Liberal Party, the party founded by Robert Menzies to defend the interests of middle-class families, well, it's on board too. Liberal leader of the Senate, Simon Birmingham, tweeted, Go Charlotte! Your mission to have more women influence the party at every level and in every way is spot on. Righto, Burmo. If women need to exercise more influence in the party, then men like you should step aside, mate. You're just in their way. Well, Australia's attitude to sexuality and marriage aren't the only fundamentals to have changed dramatically in our lifetime. So too has our attitude to the one thing that for centuries has underpinned prosperity and happiness, our freedom. Freedom of speech, for example, started to diminish in 1995, when Section 18C of the Federal Racial Discrimination Act made it illegal to offend, insult, humiliate or intimidate people for their race or colour. Opposing this legislation, as I do, doesn't mean you want to spout racist comments. It just means you think the decision to say such things and how you respond should someone utter them to you are both personal. Saying racist things makes you a douchebag, and choosing to be offended by a douchebag is, if you ask me, almost as lame. But we're not smart enough to realise that, according to most politicians and, indeed, the zeitgeist. Section 18C of the Racial Discrimination Act began the long, slow process of us outsourcing moral decisions to the government. That's not me saying that, that's Michael Lavarch, the Labor Attorney General, who said at the time that 18C was introduced, quote, 
legislation can have a powerful educative role, unquote. It sure can. Just ask young Ballarat mother Zoe Bueller, to who the powerful educative role of Victorian Premier Dan Andrews' emergency legislation preventing free speech about COVID lockdowns came in the form of handcuffs being locked onto her wrists while she was at home with her kids one morning in December 2020. The government has since changed its mind about the offence that led to this dramatic and draconian arrest and dropped all the charges without explanation. But there has been no admission of error from the police or the government. The best example of that is Matt Hancock, the former British Health Secretary who oversaw the COVID lockdowns and was busted breaking his own regulations by snogging his mistress at work in June 2021. Hancock has been to Mwilumba in northern New South Wales, shooting the British reality TV show I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. Here's a clip on a lot of people's lives. You got a lockdown fine, didn't you? No, of course, no, of course I didn't. I thought you broke lockdown rules. No, I did not. All right, I didn't break I any... You were socialising someone outside of your household. Yeah, that, I didn't break any laws. I, guidance is different, but anyway, I don't want to go Oh, so there's that. a rule and there's a law. Guidance. The guidance is guidance. guidance. Right. But oh, the problem was it was my police, guidance. Exactly. This is one of the few places where a politician anywhere in the world has openly discussed how the pandemic and lockdowns were mismanaged. Still, English YouTube star and comedian Russell Brand says Matt Hancock didn't go far enough. Matt Hancock gave PPE contracts to his friends. That means that some of the equipment that's used in hospitals was manufactured by companies that Matt Hancock personally awarded contracts to. In many cases, companies that had no experience in the manufacture. So it's an explicit example of what would seem to be corruption. He discharged untested residents from hospitals back into care homes, resulting in a vast death toll. The government that he was part of used legal coercion to restrict basic human freedoms of the entire population for the best part of two years while disobeying them themselves. Now, I suppose it's ordinary and natural that times move on, that there is progress. But has there been a real reckoning? Have we really addressed what went on in those two years? Everything that Brand listed there applies in Australia too. Trying to just move on without, as Brand calls it, a reckoning would be like, oh, I don't know, global warming catastrophist Tim Flannery turning up at the floods in Western New South Wales today and saying they should probably start bottling some of the water for the drought that's surely going to start next week. We do need a reckoning and it can start on November 26 when Victorian voters get the chance to kick out the utterly rotten, corrupt and oppressive government of Premier Dan Andrews, the man who imposed the longest lockdowns in the world and has never shown a skerrick of remorse for it. If he remains in power, then it's just an invitation for him to do it again. Our freedoms have never been more fragile and it's time to fight to get them back. Well, after all that, let's get in one of the bravest voices for freedom in Australia, Perth law academic Rocco Loyakano. Rocco, welcome. 
Good to be with you as always, Fred. Rocco, there was an interesting quote in the Weekend Australian last Saturday from Victorian opinion pollster Cos Samaras regarding the attitude of Victorian elections heading towards the state election on Saturday week. He said, quote, The sting for Labor is that there are a lot of people in the electorate who don't want to talk about the pandemic, but they are carrying around the memories of it, unquote. Now, Rocco, this is one of the things I want to talk to you about because I think this can be applied across the entire Australian population. The memory of how we were treated during the lockdown is one day going to cause considerable political upheaval, in my opinion. Do you agree? Look, I think that's true. I, I mean, there's talk that people just want to forget about it and move on. Um, and that and that may well be true because, I mean, I'm no psychologist, but, but obviously it's a natural human instinct to try and block out painful memories. But look, people do have long memories about painful experiences and they are willing to express them at the ballot box. Um, the, the, uh, the famous Wayne Goss baseball bats, um, when people waited six long years to kick out Paul Keating, six years um, to kick him out, um, and uh, you know, people uh, in 2000 and this year, 2022, uh, uh, still had memories of Scott Morrison in 2019. I don't hold the hose, mate, and him trying to hide going on holiday. So look, there are painful memories out there, and I think you can only push a quiet person so far. There'll only be there'll be enough to uh, you can say, well, look, I'll take a certain amount, but there comes a point where there, there probably might be a tipping edge, and people obviously are not keen to talk about it because obviously. You know, the way we were treated and look yeah, you know, we had christmases where people couldn't spend time with each other for all kinds of reasons this and and the yeah you know, the mandates and everything else uh divided families let alone friends i mean they're families members that I, I dare say that most of us don't talk to anymore because of it because of it all so it does have painful memories so you would hope that there's that pent-up anger in there somewhere that people just not necessarily want to get mad but they want to get even yeah and the way to get well even is that that's true. And I think there's probably political mileage to be had by any politician who has the cojones to stand up and say, look, those two years were wrong. And I promise in my administration, whoever this person might be, it'll never happen again. And that's, that was the big failing of the Liberals uh, in Victoria and I dare say around the country where they went me too on all the health advice. They, ne they never challenged it. They never spoke out against it. They never said, look, this is insane, this is wrong. Uh, they never saw the double standards where people couldn't go, to, uh, couldn't go to church or couldn't express their religion, but you could go to the bottle shops and that yeah. kind of thing. So, look, if, if, and that, that is where I think the major political parties in opposition have failed, but you would hope um, that uh, that would never happen again and that some politician actually does have the ball say, look, this will never happen again. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Now, one aspect of all this, speaking of who might be in opposition or expressing some sort of objection to what was happening, the media kind of went asleep uh, during all this, and I think they haven't woken up yet. Here's a headline <laughs> from CNN in the US explaining that both Pfizer and Moderna announced this week they are investigating whether there is any link between their vaccines and an increased risk in myocarditis, among other serious heart conditions. 
Now, this link has already been found by other independent researchers, but for the companies to start doing it themselves is a shocking admission that they knew very little about these products before they released them. The key point here is Australian media has thoroughly ignored this story this week. Why do you think that is, Rocco? Oh, they're travelling too fast at the speed of science, for example. <laughs> they, they can't, they didn't... <laughs> um, but look, the, the, I, I go back to when the Shergold uh, report was released uh, a couple of weeks ago, or a little, about a month ago, and uh, I recall that airhead on Channel 7, Natalie Barr, interviewing uh, uh, that other airhead that masquerades as the mayor of Perth, Basil Zempels, um, talking about the Shergold report, and they were carrying on. Oh, look, the lockdowns, the, 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 the terrible effects they've caused on children, isn't it? We're going to be with this for years. Isn't this terrible? And, you know, you, this is the, they were, we were saying this for years, for two and a half years, this is what was going to happen, and it was treated by these same people as misinformation and grandma killing and all this other kind of thing. And they also said, look, this is a once-in-a-hundred-year pandemic. We never had a playbook. Well, there was a pandemic playbook. Tony Abbott indeed developed one when he was health minister. Yeah. So for, for people now to come out and admit they were wrong, uh, they obviously wouldn't have the gumption or, or, the, uh, or the cojones, as we would say, to, to do that, to actually admit you're wrong, um, uh, to say that, look, we were on the wrong side of history, just isn't in their, just isn't in their DNA. Um, they obviously uh, wanted to prosecute a, a message, and we might get to why that might be the case um, a little bit later on. But um, the other thing, too, is... A lot of journalists, uh, in my experience in, in my working life, um, they don't do the, we call it the fact checking. They don't actually, they don't actually show that rigor uh, that, that's displayed. It's, it's that old saying, why let the truth get in the way of a good story? Indeed. Um, and, uh, <laughs> um, it was, and it wasn't that on display, uh, particularly by it, the fourth state. It was. And, well, uh, I think one of the, you know, they don't let the truth get in the way of, of uh what some corporate overlord is telling them is a good story. But look, that's a, the generous interpretation of all this is that the media doesn't seem to care if it's seen to be in bed with big pharma and big government. That's the impression I get. But do you think the media does care that they're giving that impression or not? Look, you only have to look at, I think, the money trail as someone described it, where do they get all these advertising dollars from? I mean, government obviously advertises a lot, um, and so do the big corporates. Um, and are you going to bite the hand that feeds you? I wouldn't have thought so. Um, there might be individual journalists out there um, who are willing to, to stick their necks out, but they're few and far between. But generally at a, at a collective level, um, no, I, I think, they're too, I think they're, they're too afraid of the machine. Uh, and uh, we, we'll just go along with it. Um, you only have to, you have, to, have to see how that journalist on Channel 7 who, uh, who had the vaccine injury early on, um, how he was treated by, by Channel 7, um, had to change his story. His name escapes me right now. Oh, well, I remember. I remember when uh, he posted uh, yeah, those, that, that those, is, those images on Instagram. There's, yeah. they, they make no bones about the message. And, yeah. yeah. And he had to pull them down and change his, change his narrative. Wow. So, no, it's... There's no bones about uh, t making the making the voice heard of the political or, or uh, corporate masters. That's for sure. That's right, and they can't 
go, uh, they can't pretend any longer that, they, uh, that they're pursuing the truth because clearly they're not in some instances, I should point out. Now, Rocco, here's a disturbing issue, uh, sorry, disturbing video of Klaus Schwab, the boss of the World Economic Forum, addressing the G20 summit in Bali. Check this out. What we have to confront is a deep, systemic and structural restructuring of our world. And this will take some time. And the world will look differently after we have gone through this transition process. I like the way he refers to we. I mean, leave me out of it, mate. Anyway, the most disturbing thing about this is that Schwab was there at all. I mean, this bloke is telling elected leaders of democratic countries that they need to fundamentally alter their economies. What the hell is he on about, Rocco? Oh, he's on about uh, concentrating more power and wealth in the hands of fewer people. Um, and as the saying goes, all power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Um, what he was going on about was exhibited um, in the uh, leader statement that anyone can find on the White House website um, and you look at the paragraphs in the leader statement that emerged from Bali, and it's all about the COP26 and COP27 and climate change and digital technologies and vaccine passports and pandemic recovery and all those kind of things and sustainability goals, sustainable development, all those things. Uh, that's what he's on about, and that's what he's telling the leaders to implement. And as I say, it's in that leader statement, uh, black and white. I'm reminded of, of something I heard uh, a few years ago. People don't want to be people don't want to be free. They want to be safe. I think Schwab uh, understands that better than most people, don't you? Oh, and you, that's the thing. The 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 left and uh, particularly understood that really well. And not that you admire the left, but you have to. The way they work like that, they put people's safety. They look. If we scare people, make them think that there's a big, big danger. You know, we'll, we'll, we've got them, and uh, that's exactly what. That's exactly what they're exploiting, whether it be through climate change emergencies or health emergencies or anything like that, exploiting the natural human instinct to just want to be safe. Um, um, and it's unbelievable how uh, so many people have been caught up in that, in that crowd mentality, um, that, 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 that uh, psychological uh, furor that, uh, that gets people. And it's not the first time in history either. Uh, look at Hitler's willing executioners, look at Prohibition, look at the Salem witch trials. It's happening again. Well, actually, I saw a photo on Instagram this week of Jewish-German soldiers on the front in World War I in 1916. And what, made, what, what I found so astonishing about those, that photo, they all looked very happy and they'd obviously just won sort of, some sort of battle. They were celebrating Hanukkah at the time. 17 years later, the German children who were born that year were sending those blokes off to concentration camps to be killed. That Things can change very quickly, can't they, Rocco? Oh, absolutely. And this is where we, this is where you look at, we were talking earlier about who, who's in bed with whom. Well, the media throughout, uh, throughout, these, uh, throughout uh, these episodes in history has always been in bed with the government and has been one of the first ones um, to, to, to exploit this message, um, along with the elites, the big corporates, doctors, the, the health professionals, and my own legal profession. They've been the ones 
who've been in bed with this thing and, and getting on board with these kind of things to make things change so quickly and change people's minds so quickly. Yeah, um, that's a, yeah, that's a frightening, that's a frightening that's observation, yeah. yeah. Now, just getting back to the G20 conference, what, what I find amusing, Rocco, is how many frequent flyer points these people are, are, are racking up. I mean, we've just finished COP27. WEF was not long before that. Now we're at the G20. I mean, and Klaus Schwab seems to go to all of them. Do you think, uh, I mean, our, our own elected representatives seem to get a lot of satisfaction about hobnobbing at these things. Are you convinced that our leaders need to attend all of these conferences? Well, no, <laughs> they don't. Um, it's, it's a simple answer. Uh, look, the thing is, again, it seemed to be hobnobbing. You know, it's that power trip again, that so sociopathic desire to ingratiate themselves with these powerful people. And uh, the, the people there, like Schwab and uh, all these others, uh, Sunak, who we know isn't even elected yet, um, as Prime Minister is there. Um, if they had, uh, if they didn't have double standards, they'd have no standards at all. Like yeah. You mentioned how many frequent flights they up, how many carbon emissions are they racking up? <laughs> and so, let's face it, Bali is on. Bali is almost Australia. So if you're coming from Europe, think of the carbon emissions that they're that they're exactly. out. Yeah. But um, I have to, I have to uh, mention here the the governor of Alberta. Uh, the Premier of Alberta in Canada, uh, who's said that she's going to waive all the COVID fines and, and, and all that, and also the, the new head of the Conservative Party in Canada, uh, who said that he wants nothing to do with the World Economic Forum. Um, and uh, they're actually out there arguing these things, and guess what? They're, they're up 10 points in the polls. Um, oh. So when you... Yeah. <laughs> um, and that was the thing about um, a lot of world leaders, that they like being seen and recognised on the world stage, but... Uh, when they do that to domestically, they're tanking, and I think Jacinta Ardern's finding that out right now. Yeah, I don't think they realise how stupid they look at these conferences, to be honest. They look detached and, and elite, which is not a good look for a democratically elected uh, uh, leader. The, um, but one of the things that keeps coming up in these conferences, Rocco, is the issue of digital IDs and central bank digital currencies. Uh, both of these have enormous potential to limit our freedoms. Do you think our freedoms are a concern to the people who are proposing them? Oh, not at all. Um, again, it's all about concentrating uh, more power in the hands of, of few people. And I think if you look at the, the White House statement uh, or the leader statement on the White House website, if you search Agenda 2030, um, I'm sure you'll, it'll come up many, many times. Um, they, uh, it, the paragraphs of interest, as far as that are concerned, are paragraphs 23 and 24, where paragraph 23 talks about harnessing the identity, the uh, technology used for vaccination passports um, to make seamless uh, travel and uh, communications and trade um, for people. And the next paragraph is about digital ID, paragraph 24, and how it fits in with sustainable development goals, which basically means uh, look, uh, this is a, an easier way for us to control uh, people, control their movements, and indeed the World Economic Forum said that they've got the technology now to uh, work out, out each one's carbon footprint. Um, they, they make no bones about these things. Yeah, um, it's all coming. Thing, yeah. And, yeah. And the other thing too about, um, about uh, you know, uh, crypto uh, digital currencies is um, particularly... It's a way of governments who are losing uh, revenue bases 
to tax something um, because you can't tax cash. Obviously, it's very hard to tax cash. And these multinationals obviously pay no tax because they've got their uh, headquarters in the Virgin Islands or Bahamas or some other wonderful tax haven. So um, if we make everyone use digital currency, then we can tax it. Bingo! We've got it. We've got a. We've we've got a tax base. We've got a tax base erosion problem solved. So yeah, um, yeah. yeah, greater control of the. Many, many I'm aspects. sure that I'm sure that's how Klaus Schwab is uh, is selling it to uh, to the leaders at places like G20. Rocco Loyak and I thank you again so much for your time. It's been great to be with you this year, Fred. Have a wonderful Christmas to you and all your viewers. See you next year. You too. Thank you, mate. That's Rocco Loyakano from Perth, one of Australia's leading voices on the issue of freedom. Well, as I mentioned at the start of the show, my colleague Nick Cater caused a bit of a stir with his column in The Australian this week. He'll join me in a minute, but we're going to ignore that particular storm in a teacup because, frankly, there are even more important things to talk about. And the first of these is the announcement by Donald Trump to make his third run for United States president in 2024. Let's get Nick in to talk about it now. Nick, welcome. Good to be here, Fred. And I take it when you say storm in a teacup, you mean T is the first letter of the, the word of a particular social media platform, which we, we, <laughs> we treat with utter contempt. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or T for a particular non-existent political party, perhaps. <laughs> that's right. The party that isn't a party. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Anyway, Nick, here's a key grab from Trump's announcement yesterday. Check this out. So many incredible friends and family here tonight. It's such a beautiful thing. It's, some people say, how do you speak before so many people all the time? If, when there's love in the room, it's really easy if you want to know the truth. It really is. You ought to try it sometime. <laughs> Together, we will be taking on the most corrupt forces and entrenched interests imaginable. Our country is in a horrible state. What I find interesting about this is that Trump chose to hold his launch, or his announcement, I should say, at a ballroom in his home in Florida in front of about a thousand invited guests. Now, Nick, he used the word love to describe the mood in the room. And you don't hear politicians use that word very often. Perhaps they should use it more often. But anyway, do you think there was a lot of love in the room? Well, there probably was if he selected the guests. Uh, he probably only selected the, those that do love him. Oh, I thought well, that's, he's, he's got his theme song already, hasn't he? Love is in the air. <laughs> Can you imagine when he's entering the Democratic, uh, the Republican convention and that music's blaring out of the speakers? <laughs> well, Most yeah. unlikely. Or he look. could go with love will tear us apart again, ah, but anyway. Ah, probably more closer to the truth when yeah, it comes to Republicans. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the Australian media was, I mean, they were horrified to see that Australian mining magnate Gina Reinhardt was in the room. I mean, why wouldn't she be there? Well, exactly. I, I would. I would have been. He would have been in trouble, in my view, if Gina wasn't there. She's always been one of his firmest supporters, and uh, somebody who's really backed what he's done on the basis of, I think, largely of what he's done for business over there. She respects him a great deal, and also his firmness towards China. And there was. I mean, let's face it. There was a lot uh, to admire in, in the first Trump presidency. Uh, and there was quite a bit that probably we'd be questioning in hindsight. And, uh, and the question is, is he the man for the times? Let's see. But yeah, uh, yeah I think it's a, it's a very interesting development. And, uh, uh, and the way he's come out, storming out, probably too early out of the blocks, coming out before the, 
midterm elections, as we said last week. And probably the attack on Ron DeSantis was far too direct and personal. Well, let's, let's get to Ron DeSantis in a minute. What I want to talk about first, though, just staying with the word love, is the mood of this. I reckon by Trump standards, this was a kind of a low key event. Yeah. Why do you think he's going with something a little subtler than, uh, than his usual style? Well, I, I guess it'll become clear over time whether he's decided he needs to be a little bit less, um, you know, full of himself than he was last time. Maybe he's, he's got the polling that shows that, because I would think that's probably what it's saying. You know, stand as Trump, but a little less Trump and a little bit more look to the country. Um, but um, it could be that, or it could be just that he's, he's, you know, just finding it hard to make progress against the sort of, the, you know, the genuine red wave that is Ron DeSantis at the moment. Yeah, well, he's made this announcement very early. I mean, if he wins the primaries, that means he w he's been in campaign mode for two years, essentially, by the time the uh, actual presidential election comes around in 2024. I think that could backfire on him. People could be sick of him by then. What do you think? Uh, yeah, that's the big danger, isn't it? I mean, also it's going to cost him a lot of money, but then it's probably not a problem. And he can he can probably finance it without sending his son to Moscow cap in hand. He can probably <laughs> just, unlike Biden. But <laughs> I, 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 yeah, it, it's going to be, it's a long strategy and um, it, it gives people time to see him and weigh him up and against the, the competition. And he's going to have to be, I think, very careful because, I mean, when he came when he got the presidency or whether he got the nomination, what, uh, three years ago, two years ago now? No, you're, you're, I'm not counting right. Six years ago now. Uh, you know, you, there, you could see how he could rise above that field quite easily. You know, there's some reasonable candidates there, but nobody that was going to perform as well as he did. Uh, and and it's, it's probably doubtful if they would have beaten Hillary Clinton if they'd had a less abrasive candidate. So mm. let's give him that. But now, of course, I think we're looking at a completely different field. I mean, I don't, I don't know all the candidates involved that well, but from what I read and hear about them, I would have thought he's got at least three strong competitors there with one standout, you know, one who is now the bookie's favourite. Yeah, well, yeah, let's talk about that. Well, I mean, for, Trump never does anything with the goal of losing, that's for sure. I mm. mean, he, he wouldn't have embarked on this with anything less than the intention of absolutely destroying the field. So he's clearly determined and he's proved before that he has that ability. Now, how viciously, I mean, his biggest obstacle, as you've hinted, is Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor. How viciously will he attack DeSantis, do you think? Well, I think it's sort of generally clear that he went over the top when he attacked him on the Sunday or the weekend before the, the primaries, when he called him Ronda Sanctimonious. I mean, it wasn't a very good pun for a start, but it was certainly too hard. You don't, if you, it's a very, diff, if you've got, if you're up against somebody who is popular, for, you have to approach it a different way. The one I always remember is um, uh, uh, Lyndon Johnson, uh, back in the, uh, the, the late 40s, he's running against Papio Daniel. Papio Daniel was the very, very popular governor of Texas at the time who had an, a daily radio show. He was like the sort of Alan Jones, the great Alan Jones of Texas of his time. So he had the audience, uh, a very loyal audience. They loved him and he used to run the, he had this band called the, uh, uh, the, 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 the Flower Boys that used to go, sponsored his brand of flower and used to go around the country singing country and Western music. So he was the big deal. 
And Lyndon B. Johnson said, well, how are we going to unseat him? And uh, they came up with the slogan, Papio Daniel's a great guy, but we don't want to lose him in Texas. We don't want to send him to Washington. We want to keep him right here. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Lyndon Johnson lost that campaign and said, I think the only campaign he lost. But I thought it was a pretty good stab. Yeah, well, I mean, Florida loves him. Maybe, maybe, maybe st yeah. Stay in the, Florida. <laughs> the, th <laughs> the thing about... Trump, though, is that he seems to have only one way of attacking, and that's kind of vicious. It's a very New York thing, really. You know, and, and for, for, for actually, for that matter, it's a very Australian thing. You know, when you attack someone, we tend to take the gloves off and have a crack and, you know, settle it over a beer later. I think that's kind of Trump's style. But there's a risk in this race against DeSantis, who's so widely loved, that that will be misinterpreted in the electorate. What do you think? Well, yeah, I mean, it's always, from listening from an Australian perspective, it's sort of odd to see, uh, you know, leaders on the same team openly brawling and fighting, you know, in a way that makes the sort of spat between, say, Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard look tame, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, it is, it is uh, odd to my eyes. And, it's, you know, it, of course, it does, doesn't really help uh, particularly if you have a bruising uh, contest for nomination for president and say so you've just spent, you know, the best part of a year, possibly longer, faddling it out amongst yourselves and then you get your, you, you select your candidate and then everybody says, well, this is the undisputed Republican or Democratic candidate. It, it's a hard shift to make in those last few months of the year between the, the presidential nominations and the, and, and the primaries and the actual presidential race. So that's always a problem. And I think if he comes out really fighting, I think it's going to be because for the reasons I said, I think you're going to put it's like he's attacking all uh, all DeSantis's supporters. It's hard to go in with a hard attack without people who are backing DeSantis. And there's clearly a large number of them clearly well beyond Florida feeling, well, he's having a go at me. So uh, so and Maybe there's a touch of nihilism and arrogance in what he said. I don't know. Though. Maybe it's yeah, Trump yeah. after all. But he's, he's got to be careful on that. He's got to recognise that, that uh, whatever primacy he had in 2016, he certainly isn't going to have this time. He's going to have to earn his place. And he comes with baggage. And I think from what I hear, and this is only anecdotal, a lot of Republican supporters I've spoken to are saying, well, I backed him in 2016. I don't regret it but I'm not sure he's the man for the job this time. And yeah. his age, of course, I mean, this is, I, I think on his age alone, we should be questioning whether he's the man to put in. We know what it's like when you have a 80 something plus person in the White House, <laughs> we're watching it play out right now. Exactly, yeah. Well, I mean, just staying on Trump, he's, he said this is ultimately a quest to save the United States, which is of course a reference to this bloke, the current president, who continues to have trouble walking upstairs and just generally being aware <laughs> of his surroundings. Check this out. Biden looks so dazed and confused there, Nick. What, 
What um, all this talk about Trump versus DeSantis actually takes people's attention away from the fact that Biden is possibly the worst president in United States history, don't you think? Oh, well, I don't think there's any doubt about that. Is I think that is fairly settled argument. So I think the science is in on that one, as they say. <laughs> uh, but look, he's a man with, um, well, both of us, I'm sure, will have sympathy because both of us have had to deal with elderly parents in recent years. He has what they would say are mobility issues as well as cognitive issues, perhaps. So, you know, at this stage in life, if he wasn't the president, they'd be urging him to, to take it easy and sit down and, and whatever. That's clear. Uh, but I, I, I detected last week that he, this hasn't sunk through to Biden himself. I mean, he took, uh, he took last week's survival in the midterms. That's what it was. Although, you know, obviously the, the, they did much better than expected as an endorsement. And I didn't read it as that. I think it'd be foolish if he read it as an endorsement and he's fine and he should run again. Uh, if that's the message he takes out of last week's primaries, we're in real trouble. Yeah, well, yeah. well, just as Democrats are hoping Trump, ru Trump runs, I think a lot of Republicans are hoping Biden does. Yeah. But yeah. anyway, just staying in the G20 in Bali, there was a lot of talk about our Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese's brilliant diplomatic coup in scoring a meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping my theory is that she senses he is not as strong domestically anymore and he can't, so therefore he can't be such a bully internationally any longer. Do you think Albo's just uh, the beneficiary of good timing here? I, I always think, that, I always assume the Chinese are bullying if they don't look, they look, look like it. And I think some of President Xi's words were very much, yeah, we can be friends if you just come around to see the world we do. You know, that was the sort of message and I think there's a danger here because although I, I think generally uh, Albanese and his foreign minister Penny Wong have been fairly strong and held the line on China, they do have this weak spot and it's called Gough Whitlam. And in there, you know, part of the Labour legend is Gough Whitlam was the man who discovered Asia. Nobody knew it was there before. And then he went in and he was the one who built diplomatic relations with China, as he did. But I think we might have spoken about this too. He did it two weeks or less than two weeks into becoming Prime Minister in a big rush because he wanted to make it part of his legacy. This is Gough Whitlam. And afterwards, people said, what do you sign that deal for? It basically gave away Taiwan, whereas other countries entered diplomatic relations with, uh, with China with a lot more nuance about Taiwan, not saying, you know, you're welcome to walk in, chums, as yeah. ours basically did. So I, I, I think this is the danger that Albanese is thinking, I've got to get my legacy secured before somebody knocks me off. Is that what The Voice is about, The Voice to Parliament? I, I think so, definitely, Fred, because all, all the wise heads around the place are saying, don't rush into this, right? The public are not quite sure what it is. In any case, they've got their minds distracted by a little thing called inflation and other matters going on around. It's not a good time to be doing it, and if you rush it, there's a danger that people go and say, I don't understand, I'm not voting for it. And that's what I hear so many people saying, even people that would lean... Uh, definitely people in favour of The Voice, but even people you'd think of as being on the Labour side in favour of The Voice, they're almost saying, don't do it this term of government. But he's determined, he's made up his mind. Uh, well, he might wind up emulating Gough Whitlam in another way as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, let's talk about another luminary from the Labour Party, Dan Andrews, who has an iron grip on Victoria, but that seems to be getting looser. Sky News broadcast a brilliant expose of his cult-like status by Peter Credlin last night. 
Can Andrews lose in the forthcoming state election? And if so, why, Nick? If, I mean, you're looking from outside Victoria and you're reading this and you're watching Peter's incredibly good documentary on this and you just go, this guy's gone. But when you look at the polling down there on the ground and you talk to people who are involved in the campaign from the Liberal Party side, there's no expectation that they're going to take back government. Are they? I mean, Dan may lose a little bit of skin, but I suspect we'll all be surprised how little skin he loses. Because, I mean, the thing about the documentary was exposed, you know, exposed was that Dan Andrews is basically uh, runs the place with the manner of a, a Chinese dictator. You know, anybody who criticising gets shoved off on the left, get shoved off into the in, in the cold room and all these things go on to make sure that people fall behind him and he has this massive staff. He has more than 90 staff compared to the Prime Minister's 50, right? So, and most of those are involved in media. He's got one of the most, possibly the most sophisticated social media campaign of any, um, any politician in the country running 24-7, well-staffed. So, yeah, he, he, he knows how to manipulate it. And, uh, and, and yeah, let's face it, the Libs haven't been exactly crash hot down there, have they? I think even on their own admission, they've had the best few years in opposition. So. Yeah, well, it should it should be the easiest election in Australian history to win, but uh, we'll see on Saturday week. Nick Cater, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Fred. That's Nick Cater, the executive director of the Menzies Research Centre and host of Nick Cater's Battleground here on ADH TV. Well, as you know, there has been a dramatic development here at ADH TV. My colleague, Alan Jones, underwent serious surgery on his back on Tuesday and is still in hospital. The operation was a success, but his recovery will be a long and difficult one. I'm sure you will join me in wishing him a full and painless recovery. Working with Alan has been a wonderful experience. Not many people are as passionate about this country as he is. He doesn't show it, but he has been turning up to the studio four nights a week for most of this year in considerable pain but there's not much that can deter him from broadcasting the views he knows that you, the voiceless battlers of Australia, share. We at ADH are going to cease broadcasting now for this year. But the exciting news is that we are already planning a bigger and better broadcasting operation for next year. Our lineup will be more diverse and we will offer some of the most compelling centre-right voices in the nation. There's a lot to be done. As my editorials tonight explained, our freedom and prosperity have not been this fragile for a long time. We are here because, like you, we don't want to sit back and watch the country we know and love be destroyed by the po-faced globalist elites who would turn it into a boring politically correct backwater intermittently powered by windmills and cow farts. Australia always was, and if you and I prevail, always will be a better place than that. So thanks for watching this year and get ready for us to return bigger and better in January. Till then, good night. And have a wonderful Christmas with all your friends, family and neighbours. See you in 2023.